0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Voices in Leadership, a series focusing on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I am Betty Johnson, and I have the privilege to direct this program and introduce today's guest. Gil Kurlikowski is the former commissioner of US Customs and Border Protection and is currently an IOP fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. But his public service can be traced long back before these prestigious appointments to police officer, detective, sergeant, lieutenant, and Seattle's chief of police for nine years. He was President Obama's drug policy advisor where he proactively welcomed non-governmental organizations and advocacy groups into policy conversations, ensuring that the focus stayed on public health. In his most recent role as Commissioner, it is perhaps useful to think of the scale of the organization he led in terms of sheer numbers. It is the largest second contributor of funds to the US Treasury, collecting 46 billion in fiscal year 2015. As the nation's largest law enforcement agency, it employs 60,000 people and has an annual budget approaching 13 billion. One can only imagine the leadership challenges that landed on his desk in any given day. During his career, Mr. Kurlikowski was awarded the Nathan Davis Public Service Award from the American Medical Association, led the U.S. delegation to the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs, and was elected twice as President of the Major Cities Chiefs Association, which represents the largest city and county law enforcement agencies in the United States as well as Canada. In a word, Gil Kurlikowski has seen and done it all when called to help resolve complex service and organizational challenges in both the public health and public safety domains. Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Dr. Howard Cole, Harvey V. Feinberg, Professor of the Practice of Public Health Leadership, please join me as we welcome Mr. Kurlikowski to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you.
1: So go, welcome. Thank you. So you've had quite a career looking at the worlds of criminal justice and public health as a police chief, as director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, most recently as commissioner. You've had many great titles. (laughs) Now in academia, we at Harvard are proud to call you fellow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. The pinnacle of your career, right? So let's just uh, talk about leadership from those multiple vantage points. Let's start with the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, where actually, People refer to that position as the drug czar. Tell us more about that office and what it's like to have a strategy on uh, drug
2: addiction, and particularly the opioid crisis. I didn't care much for the czar (laughs) title, but my wife (laughs) loved being called the czarina. it's a very small office, about a hundred people, and it uh, was brought together in the late 1980s to knit together all of the different kind of equities and assets in the federal government uh, to deal with the drug issues. And at that time, of course, a famous Boston case, a uh, uh, Boston basketball player uh, that had died of an overdose. Uh, but you could see that there were lots of disparate functions. The Department of Justice would, in the Drug Enforcement Administration would operate one way, and the Department of Education thought they had a different role, uh, and on and on, and HHS. So bringing everybody together to the table to write the president's drug control strategy hadn't been done in a number of years. It was mostly dictated from the White House uh, under the Bush administration. And when I brought everybody together, uh, the Department of Education mentioned, you know, we haven't been at the table in six years. And uh, once you have everyone at the table, it makes a huge difference for the outcome and a huge difference for who's going to uh, support it uh, after it's written.
1: And then you had to balance not only reducing demand but also reducing supply from the international point of view. Can you comment
2: more on that? You You always lead this delegation to the United Nations with a, a very large number of countries uh, that, uh, that meet once a year in Vienna, but then have multiple other meetings. And they all have different policies and different programs, whether it was Colombia or whether it was Bolivia uh, when it came to cocaine issues, or whether it was Afghanistan when it came to opium and uh, poppy issues, or uh, at that time, President Obama, early in his administration, uh, push the reset button with, with Russia. And so we had multiple bilateral uh, discussions with them about how to reduce uh, uh, opium, how to reduce uh, cocaine, because if we can do that and improve the lives of people in those countries, uh, oftentimes it certainly helps us.
1: So from a leadership point of view, how, how do you get people to work together, both in this country, abroad, from all these different perspectives?
2: I think the best thing in in, in many ways when you talk about drug abuse, drug dependency, addiction, uh, organized crime, is that it's not a partisan or a political issue in, in any way. Uh, People want their children to be safe and free from drugs. Uh, People want to see uh, the money cut off from cartels, uh, and they want to see those that are heavily engaged or those that are engaged in uh, drug trafficking uh, uh, to be uh, uh, prosecuted, to be successfully prosecuted. And so I think most people came to the the table thinking that, uh, that these were the goals. How you go about trying to figure out how this is going to work, I mean, you think about the three Central American countries. Uh, part of their, a good part of their GDP, uh, is, uh, and these are in uh, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. A good part of their GDP can come from uh, drug sales or organized crime. How do you reduce that? And as you
1: pointed out, this is a really bipartisan issue in American politics and public health right now,
2: isn't it? One of the few. Yeah.
1: And then tell us more about the intersection between. Um, Incarceration rates in federal prisons and the the drug crisis right now, and how we should address that as a society looking forward.
2: Well, when I uh, first got the job, President uh, Obama and the staff were very engaged in the economy and jobs. And I had a pretty free hand, so the the good news is I had a pretty free hand. Bad news is the president wasn't uh, uh as engaged in this in this issue as he was in in economic issues. Uh, so I got to kind of chart that course with the help of well people like you mm-hmm. uh Uh, and the Department of Education and others. That worked out, I think, to our advantage because we wanted to not just look at the drug problem in America as a criminal justice issue. Aren't the police going to do something about it? Isn't DEA going to do something about this? But how can we address this much more holistically? Uh, And I used a, a statement that we wanted to be smart on drugs, Uh, And that we uh, were not going to arrest our way out of the nation's drug problem. That meant health and education had to be key partners.
1: And so we're 15 years into this opioid crisis. All the statistics look like they're going the wrong way, except for possibly opioid prescriptions now being reduced a little bit. Do you you just want? Do you want to just comment on the future? How is this all going to play out? Do you think?
2: You know, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. When I took office in in uh the captain in charge of the narcotics unit in Seattle said to me, "He said, you know, one thing you might want to look at. Uh, there's a, some issues around op- opioid prescriptions and pills." Honestly, I had not heard of it. My colleagues in law enforcement hadn't. And then I began to look for the public sources. What are the articles? Who's actually talked about this? In the health field, there were there were certainly articles, but it was also, almost always among subject matter experts. It was not; it was an unknown issue. Uh, then people like Governor Bashir, Governor Shumlin, uh, uh, and many others recognized it and took it on. And once you elevate it to to the, uh, the the general discussion, you really get that opportunity then to bring other resources and, frankly, fresh eyes to the problem. I'm concerned about the future uh, uh, on it uh, because I I don't think in in public health we've done quite as good at giving uh, physicians other resources uh, to deal with pain management, and and I'm very concerned that if research dollars are cut, the research is going to lead to better ways to manage pain than prescription drugs.
1: And now the president has established a new White House commission to study opioids. And do you just want to comment on that? The announcement that just came a couple days ago.
2: Well, you know, I I heard the attorney general here in Massachusetts uh, uh, mention the other day. She said, you know, there's lots of studies. There's lots of research. Lots of people have come together on this. What really seems to be needed would be the the resources. So if there are other ways to manage chronic pain uh, uh, that can be widely used. And also the uh, accreditation association for hospitals. They were actually part of the problem. Right. Um, when they listed the fact that no patient should, basically, no patient should end up leaving a hospital uh, in, in any type of pain, you know, what's a physician to do right. but to write a prescription for more painkillers? Right. Probably not a good answer, but they've actually amended their uh, L- look at that! Right, that's correct.
1: You know, the Joint Commission standards are now uh-huh. changing as we speak, mm-hmm. aren't they? Yeah, so many uh, challenging issues. Let, let's move on. Lo- hearing more about your view on life as a p- former police chief of two major cities, <laughs> actually Seattle and Buffalo, right? And if you're a police chief looking at the intersection between criminal justice and public health, what what sort of issues sort of pop up for that person?
2: Yeah, I mean, last month I. Th- Felt I was in Buffalo, li- living in uh, <laughs> <laughs> being here in, in Boston. <laughs> thought you'd escaped winter, but I think the intersection is uh, is is, is uh, uh, tremendous when it comes to drug prevention. Uh, treating drug addiction. You're seeing many more law enforcement agencies much more involved now in getting people into treatment rather than getting them into incarceration. You're seeing in Massachusetts, it's clearly Quincy uh, and others have been a leader in this, and that is the issuing of naloxone to police officers, not just paramedics. And the number of saves is is tremendous. People sometimes then mention, well, then they'll just go back to using and, and on and on. But frankly, saving a life and having met, as you did, um, uh, and as the governor did, having met literally thousands of people that are in recovery. They had a drug addiction problem, Uh, they're tax-paying, wonderful, contributing citizens as a result of treatment Uh, doesn't always work, but it it makes a huge difference. So that intersection where we're all partners Mm -hmm. makes much more sense than trying to uh, deal with this issue in silos.
1: Yeah, and that way, law enforcement has become uh, another public health effort, hasn't it?
2: I think yeah. it's always been yeah. somewhat of a public health. Uh, um, if you think about who's out there 24-7, uh, they're pretty easily recognized, and they have a very easy to remember phone number. Uh, the law enforcement is, uh, is is almost always one of those first responders right. on mental health issues, on public health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, et, et cetera and what they need to do I think is to support more in the in the funding for research mm-hmm. and more in the resources in those other agencies that are actually better at dealing with mental health and drug issues than the law enforcement officer is
1: now currently the Concept of sanctuary cities is in the news, getting a lot of attention. Do you want to just comment on that as a former
2: police chief? That's come up a lot, and uh, and certainly places like Seattle. And, and, you know, the rumor is that Seattle's a bit liberal. I, I don't know if you've heard that, <laughs> um, uh, Seattle or San Francisco or others. But if you think, I mean, if you look at just about every city across the country, when a chief of police, you know, takes an oath of office, they take an oath of office to protect the people in that jurisdiction doesn't really, they don't take an oath of office to only protect American citizens within that jurisdiction. It's everybody within that jurisdiction. And so it's less about being a sanctuary city and more about making people not afraid to come to the police. And I'm very concerned that Los Angeles just recently released some statistics where they looked at the number of complaints being made about sexual assault and domestic violence by Latinos. And those numbers are down since this election. You know, I doubt if those two crimes are down, but if there's a chilling effect on people being afraid to come to the police because they think they're also part of immigration, that's not healthy for safety and security.
1: And you've had a major role also in advancing community-oriented policing. I'm sure that concept overlaps with what you just said.
2: Yeah, the, you know, the, it's it's been around for a good uh, close to 30 years. Uh, when it was first introduced that you should be more community and uh, engaged as a police officer, you know, most police officers said, "Look, I uh, I joined the department to put handcuffs on people and to drive fast," and uh, 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 but over time, it became very, very clear to even the youngest police officers that merely making arrests, uh, merely responding quickly to a crime in the long run wasn't going to be uh, as holistically good for a community as building up other resources and actually preventing crime.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Tell us about the future of the intersection between law enforcement and public health from from your point of view, uh, from a former police chief's point of view. Where do you think that's going?
2: That intersection is only going to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. I think there's just strong recognition on the part of leadership in uh, in both of those camps. Law enforcement, whether it's the unions or the head of police departments, or whether it's uh, within the public health uh, system that we need each other very much. Uh, We all live within finite resources, whether it's at the local level, the state level, or the federal level. And it's going to be very critical that we leverage those resources, Um, you know, dealing with mental health crises uh, and being able to prevent someone from either taking their own life or committing a crime. Uh, Mental health uh, professionals are by far the best to do that.
1: And then let's hear more about your uh, most recent role as Commissioner of Customs and Border Protection. Tell, Tell us what the public health community should know about that very important part of government.
2: You know, during the time that, uh, that I headed Customs and Border Protection, uh, it was always referred to as we're going to introduce the head of Customs and Border Patrol. And the only thing that is really thought about in with CBP is the fact that uh, it is about border security. Because you have the United States Border Patrol, you have Customs and Border Protection officers at 338 ports of entry, mm-hmm. but every import in the United States, every export uh, the collection is, uh, as Betty mentioned earlier in the introduction, the collection of a very large amount of revenue. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Frankly, if they do away with the IRS, uh, it's going to be up to CBP to support the entire <laughs> federal government, <laughs> government uh, which may be a difficult task. So it is a wide-ranging portfolio. Um, but I was delighted when the, when the president nominated me and then d- uh, to be confirmed by the Senate. And during President Obama's administration, I was the only confirmed uh, commissioner of CBP. Uh, which is uh, an interesting leadership issue, because as good as people are in those acting positions, uh, you need the imprimatur of the Senate. You need the, uh, uh, you need the support of the, that other branch of government. Uh, and so being confirmed by the Senate made international negotiations, made the leadership of the Border Patrol and Customs and Border Protection officers a bit easier.
1: And say more about the public
2: health ramifications of all this. The public health—the uh, first—I uh, was uh, confirmed in March of 2014, mm-hmm. and within a week, I was in McAllen, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. And that was the beginning of 68,000 unaccompanied children right. coming yeah. across the border, mm-hmm. and you—you you know this issue yeah. e- extremely well. But when it first began to eclipse, um, all of the children coming across the border. Uh, the only people to greet them and, and deal with them, and they weren't running and hiding, they were turning themselves in, uh, was the United States Border Patrol. There were no other resources available. Uh, so there was no health care, there was no um, food service, there was no security, and we had kids in rooms like this sleeping on concrete floors uh, under space blankets. I watched Border Patrol agents microwaving uh, burritos. I watched them bring in their own Children's clothing, mm-hmm. until the rest of the government, the rest of Washington D.C., actually stepped up to the plate, and HHS was, of course, one of those right. groups uh, to step up very quickly and uh, and to help with really just such a, a, a huge number of kids uh, making their way across that border on their own.
1: I remember when that issue consumed our department, Health and Human Services, and we worked closely with. Homeland security. That was a couple seasons. Is that issue still ongoing? Uh, we're it is still ongoing. Okay.
2: 2014 was was the high point. 2012, mm-hmm. 2013, and we're talking about fiscal years here. But 2014 was was the high point. 2015 was a bit of a a, a downswing, but then 2016 it came back uh, very strongly. But it looks like things. Um, given what's been talked about uh, on, uh, on immigration today. Looks like the numbers uh, for these last couple of months are certainly down. Okay.
1: And then in the midst of all this, the president has announced uh, two versions of a proposed travel ban that's being held up in court right now. T- tell us your, your thoughts on that.
2: So the travel ban when it was first uh, proposed and and talked about essentially said look there's six countries I think seven to begin with but there are seven countries and we are going to put uh, We are going to hit the pause button on people coming from those countries and we're going to look at how do we Review that these are people that are not going to do harm to the country I actually felt, one, uh, that it was certainly within the authority of the president to do that. I felt that uh, saying we're going to hit the pause button, I think, for 90 days uh, is not something that, uh, that has not occurred actually since 9-11. Those things have continued. Every part of our travel system, our air cargo, our imports and exports, every part of it has uh, uh, been reviewed and looked at. What was so devastating about this was the ham-fisted way that it was rolled out. 4.43 on a Friday afternoon, the President signs the order. Uh, The Secretary of Homeland Security is only told about it while he is on an airplane. And now you're going to expect 60,000 employees around the world from CBP to all understand and deal with this in exactly the same way. Uh, whether you're landing at Logan or whether you're landing at JFK. Well, you actually can't do that. You actually need people to have an understanding of what are the rules and why, and you need to educate people coming from those countries. Remember, that included people with visas. It also included lawful permanent Mm residents. Lawful permanent residents actually can vote in the United States. There was probably no reason to include them, but it really kind of shows you that it wasn't very well thought out.
1: Do you want to project what's going to happen in the future with this issue? Or?
2: I wouldn't be surprised if the courts are going to side with the most recent uh, 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 case that, uh, that what he's done and what's being uh, done is, uh, is within uh, the legal parameters. Um, I think that what's more important is how do you communicate to other governments and other countries? Uh, to their ambassadors what's going on and why. And no matter what, you can't get out from under that umbrella of the statements that were made during the campaign uh, about a ban on Muslim to then say, well, here are six countries or seven countries or earlier, uh, which have predominantly Muslim populations. I I think that's hard. The other part to remember is that there are a lot of people that come to this country every single year for tourism and for business. And it is a tremendous asset and benefit to our economy that they come. Uh, if we make the, the, the message that you're not welcome, or it's going to be very difficult for you to come here, that can have an impact on, uh, on our economy. So Gil, as we look back on your extraordinary career, you had a run
1: in public service that's gone almost Four decades, is that right? A little over four decades. Wow. But
2: you were wow. being kind, <laughs> yeah,
1: so thanks. So, so tell us from a very personal point of view how, how you had the stamina to, <laughs> to do this. And what, what are the leadership lessons our students can get looking at a career like Yeah, yours? I,
2: I mean, I think the leadership lesson, and I don't think it's uh, it's particularly different from when I uh, talk to doctors and in, uh, about interns uh, and the amount of hours and the time that you put in uh, in a hospital. So one, you have to have an incredible work ethic. Uh, everyone is is kind of watching you uh, mm-hmm. as, as a leader and if you're not putting in the hours and putting in the time uh, that's a that's a mistake I think the second part is you have to be a good communicator you know you're no longer a manager you're no longer an executive, you're a leader of, of an organization. So they want to hear from you and they want to see you. And with CBP being in 40 different countries, uh, that's an awful lot of airplane travel. <laughs> and the last uh, lesson, I, I think, is that people have to know you care. Uh, I had a number of Border Patrol agents that were killed in the line of duty during my time uh, at, at CBP, even, even during those three years. And those families and those border patrol agents have to you. You have to exhibit that you care to say. Well, I'm a very strong leader, and I'm not going to cry, or I'm not going. You know, uh, etc. Et People don't know you care unless they know you care.
1: Final thoughts on leadership lessons for our students, in particular, as they look to their futures.
2: Yeah, I think those. I think those three things are particularly good. We were fortunate the other day to have. Uh, uh, Secretary Clinton uh, come and speak to a small group at the Kennedy School mm-hmm. and the student moderators ask her well you know wh- what about uh, what are what are the books that you're reading right now <laughs> and she said you know I know you all have a lot of reading to do as a, as a student at Harvard she said I'd really encourage you to perhaps spend more time talking to people listening to people and particularly getting the viewpoints of people That you may not agree with, or that you may not understand, and uh, and I think those people skills are as important as these skills.
0: Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Gail, if I can
1: say, our country uh, owes you a debt of gratitude. Thank you so much for your decades of public service. Thank you, Hal. Thank you. you.
2: This has
0: been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.